The Key Economic Releases Affecting Fixed Income Yields Insights into Sectors Influencing Fixed Income Securities How AAM plans to capitalize on these themes for your fixed income portfolio. The Portfolio Fix is a podcast series featuring members of AAM's investment and portfolio management team. We will discuss the timely issues affecting the fixed income investments of our insurance clients. Welcome to episode seven of the Portfolio Fix, a podcast series from AAM. My name is Patrick McGeever and I'm a member of the investment team. Today we'll be speaking with Dan Weinberg about the convertible bond market, but first we wanted to provide our regular update on key economic releases with Marco. Um, how you doing, Marco? Um, well, thanks, Pat. Great. Um, last week we learned 3Q19 GDP came in at 1.9%, which was slightly better than expected. Um, can, maybe you can start off by letting us know what segments actually contributed to the growth and what segments uh, were a drag on the uh, on GDP. Sure. Uh, and like you said, uh, 1.9% was a little bit better than the market was expecting. The, the consensus had GDP growing by 1.6% in, uh, in the third quarter. And, and keep in mind, this is based on the initial estimates. They'll be get they'll get revised two more times. But looking uh, deep into the details of the report, uh, no surprise that personal consumption, consumer spending, was the uh, the main driver of growth, uh, followed by government spending. And for the first time since the fourth quarter of 2017, residential investment uh, was a positive contributor to growth. And that that was as expected. Um, We saw some, you know, strong housing data in the months of July and August. So the uh, we were prepared for uh, housing to finally provide some positive contribution to overall growth uh, in the third quarter. Offsetting those uh, positive contributions, uh, non-residential investment, that's um, business spending, business investment, uh, trade, net trade was a uh, negative and inventory investment uh, subtracted marginally from growth as well. So personal consumption, strong driver, uh, non-residential investment uh, continues to be very weak. Okay, so um, like you said, the consumer part of the equation was was expected. Um, And to an extent, the uh, business component was also expected, which did not contribute to growth. What do you think it would take for non-residential investment to actually contribute to growth going forward? Well, I think a few things. Um, First, domestically, an improvement in uh, revenue and earnings, uh, even the expectations for growing revenue and earnings, uh, a resolution or at least a path to a resolution to the U.S.-China trade deal uh, talks, and then improving growth in Europe and China. I think those three factors, if we were to see uh, them, would go a long way towards improving the sentiment, uh, which ultimately would lead to uh, increase in business investment and uh, and non-residential investment. Okay. Given that we really don't have clarity at this point uh, on that residential, I'm sorry, that non-residential investment, 
What is AAM's view on fourth quarter growth? Sure. Well, the, the forecast right now among economists is for GDP to increase by uh, 1.7% in the fourth quarter, which is just slightly slower than what we saw in Q3. And if you if you look at the at the risks, both upside and downside, the downside risk I just mentioned, uh, namely uncertainty regarding trade, uh, slowing growth in U in uh, China and in uh, Europe, uh, that's really being offset by uh, what continues to be a very healthy labor market. Uh, last week, the October employment report was uh, was fairly strong, and. As long as employment remains low, uh, wages continue to rise, and we have job growth, that should be very supportive to consumer spending. And so when we look at both the, the potential for upside and downside risk to economic growth, uh, we think those risks today are fairly balanced. And so we would expect a GDP number for the fourth quarter to come in around consensus estimates of 1.7%. Okay. So one of the items that I keep seeing in economic reports that I read are uh, the probability of a recession in 2020, uh, and it's it's been gradually increasing over the year. And I was wondering, what is our view on the probability of a recession next year? Sure. If you look among the uh, consensus among economists, the uh, they, they peg that probability somewhere around 36 percent. Uh, as the uh, odds of the U.S. economy entering into recession in, in 2020. Um, here at AAM, we, we, we also think the risk of recession is fairly low, you know, less than 50%. Um, again, given the, <clears throat> given the reasons I just mentioned, that with the consumer representing a little bit over 70% of economic activity, uh, and with job growth continuing to be strong and unemployment low, uh, we think that you know limits the odds that the U.S. enters into a recession uh, in 2020. Okay, maybe we can wrap it up by uh, identifying uh, some key economic releases that you're looking forward to uh, next week. Sure, um, there's two pieces of data coming out this week that I think uh, should. Uh, garner attention. One is the uh, the ISM non-manufacturing index, um, similar to the uh, to the manufacturing in the index. Uh, it's a, a survey um, to kind of gauge the sentiment among service providers and with services representing a larger portion in the manufacturing sector. What we're looking for is if the weakness in manufacturing is bleeding into the services sector. What we saw last month is. Uh, this index decline and so we're going to be paying very close attention to the numbers this week to see if there's a stabilization Uh, the expectation is for just a very modest increase in that index level Uh, but it would concern us if we see a continued sharp decline in that index then that would mean that weakness in manufacturing is bleeding into other sectors of the economy and then as you mentioned uh, with respect to the consumer at the end of the week we get the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, uh, important index to gauge the uh, confidence and sentiment level uh, among consumers. Uh, we don't want to see a drop in that confidence because that would then call into question uh, their ability to continue to spend the way they have been and, and support the economy. 
Okay, thanks for that, Marco. We'll keep a close eye on the ISM non-manufacturing number and the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment, and we'll discuss that during our next podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you. Next, I'm joined by Dan Weinberg of Zazoff Associates and Tim Seneschal of AAM. We're going to discuss recent trends in the convertible bond market. Dan has been a portfolio manager with Zazoff for the past seven years and has been involved in capital markets for the past 14 years. Tim is a senior portfolio manager at AAM and has been with us for the past 20 years. In addition to his portfolio responsibilities, Tim is a member of the AAM Investment Strategy Committee and works closely with Zazoff. So welcome, guys. Thanks, Pat. For those listeners that are not aware, uh, Zazoff Associates manages convertible strategies for institutional investors, including many AAM clients. Tim, since you work so closely with Dan, uh, why don't you handle the Q&A for now? Perfect. Thanks, Pat. And Dan, thanks a lot for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, maybe, uh, Dan, for those who aren't familiar with, uh, with convertibles and with uh, outright uh, balance strategies, maybe take a minute and, and just describe what it is that the Zazoff tra- team is trying to achieve. Sure. Uh, with convertible bonds, uh, we are focused on the balanced part of the curve, which is to say convertibles that have upside participation uh, when stocks are moving higher, as well as downside protection uh, should stocks go the other way. Uh, we roughly will get something like two-thirds of the upside in up markets and one-third of the downside in down markets. And we're very disciplined about selling convertible bonds that either become too equity-like because equity prices have been rising for some time, and we see that in today's market, um, and similarly selling bonds to the downside uh, as they move and become more bond-like um, to the extent they no longer offer upside participation, uh, those become sell candidates as well. Um, so it's really that focus on curve positioning that allows us to kind of capture equity upside and still always uh, protect the downside regardless of market environment. Great. So you uh, you mentioned uh, selling positions that have moved up the convertible curve, and we've had a pretty sustained market rally. Have you been active sellers? Is there more turnover in portfolios uh, as of late? Yeah, I would say it's uh, definitely been the case that we have uh, what we like to call more point A examples where we sell on the upside than point B examples where we sell the downside, and that's a function of the environment that we've been in. Um, for almost a dozen years now. Um, Very few uh, equity market turnarounds, um, not a lot of chances to test the quality of our bond floors. Um, More of it is saying, okay, we like this company, we like this convertible, but it no longer has the structure we desire. Instead of getting 60 or 70% of the upside, we're now going to get 90 or 100% of the upside if stocks keep going up. But should this turn around, uh, we don't have protection from the bond floor. We're too far away from the bond floor on that convertible curve. Uh, and we are putting ourselves at risk to the downside, and that becomes a sale candidate for that reason. Gotcha. So what are you doing with proceeds? The proceeds are used to deploy back into balanced convertible bonds. There are plenty of uh, balanced convertible bonds remaining, even though many have moved up the curve. A lot of that supply comes from the primary market, and new issuance has been quite robust this year. Uh, We're on track for the most new convertible paper in the U.S. since 2007, Uh, That may signal other things about the equity market in general. Uh, But from a convertible perspective, we think there's no more important time as a long-only investor to make sure that you have protection 
uh, in your convertible portfolio. And we've seen a lot of the convertible indices, which we don't follow, uh, get to a point where uh, there really isn't any downside protection. It looks a lot more like a uh, NASDAQ ETF than it does a true convertible bond portfolio. You, uh, you mentioned supply and, and uh, that we've seen a lot of it. Um, Put that into context and maybe describe for a minute what a typical New Deal looks like and and, uh, how you evaluate things. Sure. So I've gotten a question a lot over the past several days about, oh, isn't the convertible market shrinking? Well, you know, maybe for a year or two post-crisis, but uh, for the past three to five years, we've seen an expansion of the market, more new paper uh, coming our way than uh, paper leaving the market based on maturities, redemptions, etc., um, so the market has been expanding, and this year is pretty remarkable growth in terms of uh, being on pace for over $60 billion. Uh, To put that into perspective, uh, I would say the average over the past 10 years has been something in the order of 35 to $40 billion per year in the U.S. Uh, we also invest internationally uh, in uh, U.S. dollar-denominated convertibles for our core portfolios, uh, where we can find a lot of good industry diversification, a lot more investment-grade paper that's been invested. A lot more investment-grade paper that's been issued overseas than in the U.S. in recent years. Who are some of the um, issuers that typically would go to the convertible market rather than the straight bond market or the equity market? You see all kinds of issuers come to our market. It is typically thought of as a source of growth capital. Um, so there are a lot of technology companies who will come to the convertible market. That's something we're very aware of in terms of a risk that's out there in the marketplace, just in terms of industry concentration. That's something we manage around quite actively. Uh, but it's all over the place. You see biotech companies, you see software companies, you see big industrials, you see small industrials. Uh, it is a relatively well-diversified space. Uh, and the average kind of market cap for convertible issuers anywhere from 2 to $10 billion, kind of in that mid-cap type range is, is sort of your typical convertible issuer today. Um, but you have large caps like Intel out there, and you've got uh, micro caps who maybe issue a convertible to a small group of investors and still comes through the public market. But that's really the vast minority of uh, what we would be looking at um, at our firm. Do you have a lot of reverse inquiry into issuers that give you a competitive advantage over allocations? We typically don't try to shape what comes to the market um, to the extent that we are having an influence before a deal comes alive. It's really because the bank decided to include us in a private uh, wall cross process, get our feedback, make sure that we can shape the terms um, in a way that makes sense and that it'll clear the market. That is typically for the lower credit quality uh, issuers where maybe the stock's a little bit less liquid or there's not enough borrow for arbitrage investors to get involved where they would need to short the stock in order to buy the convertible. Uh, That is obviously not what we do on the long-only side um, by definition. But uh, in those cases, we will have the ability to impact kind of how a transaction looks and feels before it comes to market. And in that process, we'll also be insured a pretty decent allocation um, when it does come. Uh, Those deals typically price more cheaply uh, than uh, your average convertible transaction, and it's nice to have that as a part of the portfolio. Um, But it is uh, not the case that we're necessarily going out and saying, oh, we really want a convertible from VeriSign specifically. 
um, for the very reason that we're not actually stock pickers. Uh, one of the things that differentiates us from our competitors is that we are really focused on convertible structure, and that's a bottom-up analysis. That whole two-thirds, one-thirds profile that I kind of outlined earlier, um, that's what we care about more than anything else. It's not um, that we think this stock's going to do really well and so we buy the convert, or we think this stock's going to do poorly so we don't buy it. Um, over time, some stocks are going to go up, some stocks are going to go down. As long as we have the structure in place and the right risk-reward profile at the portfolio level, um, that's how we've been able to generate alpha over multiple cycles um, and how we've gotten equity-like returns uh, over a full market cycle with roughly 60% of the volatility. So, Dan, uh, you know, in, in straight debt markets uh, this year, we've had uh, a little bit less supply than than was anticipated, but plenty of demand. And, and so uh, new issue concessions are pretty thin. When you guys look at, uh, at new issue paper and kind of compare uh, theoretical value versus where things get priced, where do you see value? Is it new deal flow? Is it secondaries? Is it just deal by deal? Maybe walk us through how you're looking at the market today. Sure. So there definitely are new issue concessions in our market. It can vary depending on supply-demand dynamics, not too dissimilarly from the fixed income markets. But I think the concessions on average in the convertible market are quite a bit more generous than they are in the fixed income markets. Uh, like other things that uh, you will see in convertibles, it is a hybrid between fixed income and equity, and the new issue market functions similarly. Mm -hmm. The average deal uh, is about a point and a half cheap uh, to fair value, and that's often realized you know, in the early days um, of the security issuance. So uh, that is pretty typical. Um, I wouldn't say that's much above or below historic norms uh, in terms of what we've seen this year. Earlier you mentioned, uh, you mentioned arbitrage investors, and just curious, uh, you know, ConvertArb had been uh, a big part of the market pre-crisis. What's happening in, in the ARB space today, and, and uh, how has the equity market environment treated investors in that, in that segment? So convertible arbitrage is still roughly 50% of our marketplace in terms of who the investors are and how they approach the world. A lot of those funds are now much lower levered than they were pre-crisis. I would say the average leverage level is probably two to three times for a typical convertible arbitrage fund, as opposed to pre-crisis, you were anywhere from five to 10. Um, so that really changes the dynamics of the market um, in a big way. We actually relaunched our convertible arbitrage product at the beginning of the year, uh, talking about burying the lead. Um, I am running that uh, for the firm currently, and uh, we're off to quite a good start in terms of returns. Uh, but again, I think the long-term return expectations are more kind of in the mid-single digits. Uh, and the real reason to get involved in that way is not at all the equity-like returns with lower volatility that I was talking about earlier. It's much more of a pure fixed income alternative where your equity market uh, beta is uh, zero. Interesting. We'll uh, definitely be keeping an eye on that uh, as we move uh, through the end of the year. Um, you know, Dan. Before we uh, <clears throat> before we wrap up, what's on your radar as we uh, as we kind of turn the calendar into November? What are you looking for, uh, kind of back in the balanced uh, convertible strategies? What's going to drive returns for for your strategy? Yeah, it's always going to be equity returns first and foremost. And I probably should have said that sooner. Which is, 
even though we can be considered a fixed income alternative, even on the outright side of um, our strategies, uh, what we're talking about is that equities are really going to drive returns. When equities go down, converts are going to lose money. When equities go up, converts are going to make more money than they lose in the downtimes. And we see a lot more uptimes than downtimes historically through cycles. Um, so that's why we think it's important to just kind of stay invested, but also have that downside protection, that capital preservation, um, if and when equity markets are weaker. Um, in terms of the back half of Q4, let's call it, um, I still think supply will be robust in the primary market. We had three deals launch uh, yesterday and this morning that will be pricing today. And we think that will continue with interest rates where they are, with equity prices where they are. We think the motivation for convertible issuers to keep coming to our market remains high. You mentioned the capital preservation um, characteristic of the asset class. As we get further along into this late stage of the credit cycle, uh, does that make convertibles more attractive to the equity market? So what I'll say is I'm more concerned about the late stages of the equity cycle than the credit cycle. Um, Credit is important. Credit matters when things are really weak in equities and your bond floors start to be tested. And it doesn't matter whether it's single B, double B, triple B, whether the bond floor is worth 60, 70, or 80. For us, it's really a function of doing that work and knowing what that bond floor is worth so you can properly assess the upside and downside of the convertible. When I think about where we are in the equity market environment in this late stage, I think it's more important than ever to ensure that you do have some downside protection from your bond floors, that you're not so far away from your bond floor, which we typically measure with investment premium, uh, that you're not going to have downside protection if and when markets correct. Because what we've seen historically is in crisis periods, one of the reasons Zazov has significantly outperformed the market and its peers in that environment is because we've continued to sell those equity-like convertibles and rebalanced into the middle of the curve. In so doing, we've kept true to our strategy, stayed closer to our bond floors, and protected to the downside. But when you look at those indices or other managers who have ridden the wave higher, then you would see that on the way down, they go down lockstep with equity markets for the first 20-some-odd percent of the decline. That's not what convertibles should do for you in that environment. That's what equity-like convertibles will do in that environment, but that is not what a balanced convertible portfolio will demonstrate in a down market in equities. From a credit perspective, that's absolutely a concern. You have to look at where we are in the credit cycle, where high-yield spreads are relative to historical norms, even where IG spreads are relative to historical norms, and think about what happens to our portfolio if credit spreads start to widen. Thankfully, that is not a major driver of our returns, but it can impact downside performance. And you want to make sure that you've done the fundamental credit work, which we have the team in place to do, uh, to know what the quality of that bond floor is, in fact. Uh, Where you can really run into trouble is if you move down the curve and don't sell and the credit starts to deteriorate with the equity, um, that's a situation you don't want to find yourself in. Uh, But in terms of credit spreads widening, that is not going to have a negative impact on our return profile absent equity price moves um, that it will have in the high-yield credit markets. Um, So, uh, Dan, Tim, that's really all the time we have right now. 
Uh, but thanks a lot for the update on the convertible sector. And thanks to you for listening to the Portfolio Fix. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, please reach out to your portfolio manager or contact our marketing team at aamcompany.com. That's A as an asset, A as an allocation, M as in management, company.com. During our next podcast, Marco will review the economic data points he spoke about earlier and will be joined by Greg Bell, who will provide an update on the municipal market, which has also seen a surge in issuance in recent months. We hope you'll join us. Thanks.